Today's Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, which can be found on page 1509 in your Black Bibles. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I don't know about you, but I often feel like when I turn to the Bible and uh, I'm explaining who I am as a Christian, it can feel like I'm often saying very politically incorrect things, you know, like I'm a bit sort of out of step with the way the culture is heading and that sort of thing, which is why it's so refreshing, isn't it, when you come to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and we finally hit something that's so politically correct, right? Do not judge, or you too will be judged. I mean, what could be more 21st century Australian than this? Don't judge, right? That, that has wings that can fly with uh, your neighbours and friends who don't believe in Jesus. So it's all looking good until you get to verse 6 of chapter 7. It says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds just a tad judgmental to me. Uh, you know, we're being asked to work out who the dogs and the pigs are. So don't judge, do judge. Right? And then we go on to verse 7 and we have this absolute ironclad guarantee about God answering every prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Want to be rich? No worries. Go out and buy a cross lotto ticket. You will win. Right? Ask, you'll get it. Okay. Want to be like me? I always wanted to be 10 centimetres taller. No problems. Pray. You will grow. Right? Seek. You will find. See, what is going on in this passage? We have quite contradictory things and quite startling things that are thrown at the same time. And I want to say to you that the Bible is, is not like a, a dictionary. You know how a dictionary, you're looking for something in particular. You look up a word, you get the definition and you move on. With the Bible, it's quite different because God is the author of this, this word and the ideas hang together in sequence, right? It's, it's more like a novel than it is a dictionary, right? So we should expect as we come to a passage that it will be coherent and it will have a sense of, you know, purpose about it. Uh, we worked it out here in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of Matthew's Gospel, in the context of the New Testament, in the context of the Bible, right? It, that is, we don't isolate little statements and come up with conclusions. But I do want to say here, in Matthew chapter 7, 
there are some puzzles. And we should be just a tad puzzled. We have a statement that's politically correct, one that seems offensive, and one that seems too good to be true. <laughs> it'll all roll in in just a couple of sections. So how do they hold together? See, what's the overarching thing that's happening in this passage? I've got an outline there. You might find that useful. Uh, but why don't I pray that God will help us actually make sense of how this hangs together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's co- coherent, that is, you're a God who speaks with clarity, with purpose, uh, not mindlessly, not in a contradictory sort of way. And therefore, Father, we pray that as we consider this, you'll give us insight and understanding so that we might know what it means to have a relationship with you and know what the implications are for us as your followers as we live in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, don't judge. First five verses. This is one and two. Don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So here's the question. What, what sort of judgment are we talking about at this point? Is it the, um, the sort of judgment that is a condemning sort of judgment? Uh, you know, it's like when you go before a judge in a court, he passes sentence on, say, a criminal for an offence, then the sentence is carried out. That sort of judgment. And in fact, as you go through Matthew chapter 7, there are clear elements of that idea of judgment on view. If you go to verse 13, you see there it says, Wide is the gate and the road, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Or if you press on a bit further to verse 19, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or you get to verse 23. Now he's talking at this point for those who claim to be followers and actually even do miracles in Jesus' name. We read this. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly here in chapter 7, the strong judgment of God is on view. Now, it's not a popular idea that God judges. Uh, That isn't one that uh, people in our world like to hear, but it is real. There is that sort of judgment on view in Matthew chapter 7. That's one possibility. The sort of judgment that we could be talking about is the idea of discernment. Um, uh, You know, judging the best sheep at the royal show. That's a sort of an assessment rather than a a judgment. Or who wins the Archibald portrait prize. Well, that's a... You're trying to work out who has the skill or the best skill and presentation. Or an umpire who decides if a cricketer is... LBW or not, you know, and out. You're making an assessment based on a whole range of different things. And at that point, we're not talking about standing in the place of God. That is, it's not ours to determine someone's eternal judgment. But it does seem like we are at different points to exercise godly discernment. Uh, Verse 15, see what it says there. It says, watch out for the false prophets... Uh, by their fruit, you'll recognise them. Okay? So what we have here in this passage is very clear. 
Don't judge, but do judge. Okay? Don't judge, but do judge. Let, let me see if I can express that more clearly. Jesus is saying, exercise godly judgments, but as you do it, be careful not to be judgmental. Right? That's clear, is it? You, you get the issues that's going on here, don't you? Uh, judge, but don't go and do likewise, okay? It's deliberately trying to get under our skin to make us think about what's going on here. And fortunately, what we have is Jesus giving us an illustration to help us understand what he's talking about. So we go on to verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay attention and not pay attention to the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. It's, it's an amusing, amusing picture. You know what it's like when you get a, um, an eyelash stuck in your eye? And it's just impossible, you know, to get it out. And even if someone's trying to help you, they find it hard to locate it and to get it out as well. But it's such, so extraordinarily irritating. Well, that's the sort of mini picture that's being painted here. But then Jesus um, exaggerates the whole thing. He says, imagine... Meredith is struggling to get an eyelash out of her eye, right? And then I come along and I decide to help. But I have a gum tree growing out of my eye over here. And I say, it's okay, Meredith, I'm going to help you, right? Boof, oh, sorry about that, boof, just let me get in. You know, That's the picture that's being painted. It's just so stupid. I'm unaware of the obstruction I have in my eye. Well, I'm trying to get something small out of Meredith's eye. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's continuing his attack on hypocritical judgmentalism. That is, the way in which we can look look down on others with that critical spirit, that sense of moral superiority, that that harsh attitude, that self-righteousness that is oblivious to our own failures and faults and sins but be really astute when it comes to the condition in other people's lives and their hearts and their faults and their attitudes. And it's so easy, I think, for Christians to drift into this sort of um, moral policeman approach to life. So easy. When I was a, a student minister... I remember going along to, so I was at college, college like this, and I remember going along to uh, the church where I was serving in, and I think it was about the second week I was there, there was an old couple, so I would have been about, you know, 27 or something like that, and uh, this, this older couple in their 80s came up to me and introduced themselves to me, which was wonderful. They said, hi, I'm Duncan, this is my wife, Elsie, right? But the next statement caught me a little by surprise. So, introduce themselves... This is the first thing they say to me. We have the gift of rebuking. Okay? <laughs> opening, opening ploy. And I thought, there are, there are a couple of things I thought. One was, I'm not sure that's a gift. Uh, that was the first thing I thought. And then the second thing I thought is, why are you telling me this? <laughs> it's not exactly the thing that you, you feel secure when someone does. Uh, but... 
get the point I'm making here. Do Do you hear the way in which it is so easy for me, even looking back a number of decades, to stand in a superior position as I talk about them? to be critical of them and think, oh, this is not my sort of problem. Do you understand that's the sort of thing that Jesus is trying to unmask as we come to this passage? Now, hear me right, Jesus is not saying uh, abandon your sense of discernment or your ability to assess what is godly behaviour but he's asking, as, he, as Jesus does all through this Sermon on the Mount, he asks us to think deeply about our relationship with God and how it shapes my attitude to other people. Uh, we, we will all face up to the living God at the end of the age. Uh, we will be summoned before the judgment throne of the eternal God How would you like God to exercise his judgment on you at that point? I'm hoping for grace and mercy because that's the only basis upon which I'll have any reception at all before the throne of God. And it's only as we understand that that it will shape the way in which we treat other people and the way in which we relate to them. Back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. See, we're to realise our, our spiritual poverty before God. We're to mourn our sin. And we're to reflect on the mercy that God has shown us in his Son. And as you do that, you can never have any sense of self-righteousness or arrogance, can you? And you're dealing with other people. It's actually an impossibility when you keep reflecting on where you stand before God by his mercy and his grace. But of course, if you lose touch with the, the God of the Bible, the God who is gracious and merciful, then, as we see, beginning of chapter 6, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you will become hypocritical because you'll assess others on the basis of your own sense of self-righteousness. Or you will become a materialist because you'll abandon that God. You'll look for your meaning somewhere else. Or you will get anxious, verses 25 to 34. Or, as we see today, you will become judgmental as soon as you misunderstand what's going on. So here's the question. Uh, Jesus is particularly talking to disciples, and I think the focus here is especially on how we relate to one another as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's especially what's on view. So how do you think we're likely to uh, put this into practice, that is, to be um, uh, judgmental with one another in inappropriate ways? Where are the rub points for us as a community of God's people? Now, here's the advantage that you have. Uh, I don't know you very well. So uh, uh, I'm about to speculate, and as I speculate, you can know I'm not talking about you because I don't particularly know you. So let me just throw out some 
observations made uh, after a few decades of, of being involved in Christian ministry rather than, you know, I'm not singling out Nandor at this point, all right? <laughs> that is, it's, uh, it's just, just reflection. So how are we likely to do it? Here's a few thoughts. One would be parenting styles. Okay, so I've uh, observed a number of churches with uh, young families, and I think it's easy to be um, to look down on other parents for the way they go about it, the way they discipline their kids. Uh, they're thinking about education, its importance or lack of importance. How many children should you have and be responsible in this world? You know, is it okay to have two? Should you have one? Should you have none? Should you have twenty-three? You know, like you know, we can exercise judgment on that. Uh, how much screen time should our children be allowed to have? We'll have different views on that. What's the right age for a child to be allowed to have a mobile phone or not allowed to have a mobile phone? Uh, should you have controlled crying or should you have totally uncontrolled crying when it comes to children? Uh, should you raise kids Jesus' way or should you raise kids Satan's way? You know, like there are lots of different th- in-jokes for those who know those sort of terms. But do you know what I mean? There's lots of different views for the way in which you should go about caring for your children or we can exercise I think um, judgment on one another when it comes to finances and resources um, the way in which people spend their money the lifestyle they choose to live in uh, the house that they buy the clothes that they wear or it could be broader when it comes to lifestyle sort of questions um, whether you drink alcohol or not, uh, what sort of vehicle you drive. Uh, There are lots of ways in which we can subtly be assessing ourselves against other people and weighing up where they sit and where we sit in the scheme of things. Now, hear me saying correctly, uh, I'm not suggesting we don't discern sin. We obviously should be doing that. But as you do it, you remember that you are a recipient of grace. You do reflect on the fact that you have received mercy. You do reflect on your own sinfulness. And therefore, you respond to others on the basis of that deep grace and humility that you have because of your standing with God and treat people from that basis. Otherwise, what we'll do is we'll do that sort of discernment, judgment thing as a way of actually making ourselves feel better about ourselves. And isn't that often the case when we measure against others? We generally do it so we actually feel better about the choices we have made and about our standing with God by comparison with them. And can I say, is that not a complete waste of time? (laughs) Is that totally useless way to spend your mind and your concerns? The way we treat others, based on grace, based on mercy. The same way you judge, you'll be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Don't judge. And then Jesus says, do judge. Verse 6. Here's where you need to judge and discern. Do not give dogs what's sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under under their feet and tear you to pieces. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. In our culture, calling someone a dog can actually be a term of endearment. You know, I can say, Pete LaForge, you dog, you know. Uh, yeah, and you can think I might be saying that in a warm way. I'm not saying you should call your wife a dog, not smart, you know, but there are some ways in which this term can be used that in our culture are quite warm. But can I say, impossible to do that in this first century sort of context. Um, you know, you might think of pigs, you know, like those flying pigs at the Royal Show, the little piglets, you know, performers, right? Very attractive. Not like that, right? With first century context, you call someone a dog, you're talking about a wild scavenger animal that could be quite dangerous. Uh, pigs were an unclean animal for a Jewish person in particular. And in a way, it was, it was really a, a racial slur almost to call someone uh, a pig in this sort of way. Uh, I was trying to think of an equivalent for our 21st century context here in Australia. I think to call someone a dog or a pig would be like calling them in our context a child molester or a prostitute. Okay? It's, it's a powerful, loaded sort of term. So don't judge, but this does seem a tad judgmental, don't you think? Calling someone a dog or a pig. But understand the point is clear. Don't give what is valuable, that is the gospel, to those who will have no appreciation of it and will treat it like rubbish. Uh, I have an uh, almost four-year-old granddaughter now called Lily. Right? She is a delightful little girl, but she doesn't have much appreciation of fine things. Right? So when she comes over our place, we generally do not feed her food on fine bone china. Right? But in case you're judging me, we don't have much of it. Okay? Right? <laughs> Just, uh, right? But we don't give any food on fine bone china. She does not drink her milk out of crystal goblets. Right? Because at four years old, she cannot handle it. But you might say to me, but, but if it comes to the gospel, isn't the whole point of evangelism uh, to tell the gospel to people who have no appreciation of it? Like, and, I, and I get that. Um, you know, like you tell the gospel to people who are anti-Christian, don't you? I'm really thankful someone did that for me, right? I was a dog or a pig, and someone took the time to actually persist and get past the veneer, and it took quite a while until I listened to the gospel and responded to it. So what, what exactly are we talking about here? Jesus is not advocating a harsh judgmentalism of those who haven't responded to the gospel. I mean, that would be impossible to come to that conclusion if you're someone who believes in Jesus because you know you've received mercy and grace. So we can never stand over the top of anyone else. But I think there are times when it is wiser to move on. When I became a Christian, uh, I was really keen for all my mates to hear the gospel. We were at university at the time, uh, and prior to becoming a Christian, I just went out drinking and partying with them on a regular basis. When I became a Christian, I still tried to join them in going out without participating in the behaviours that uh, were inappropriate for me to get into. And at those parties, after a while, these guys would be very happy to engage with me in gospel things, but they're just doing it to stir me up, really. 
and I had no memory of what we talked about the following day. And after a while, I worked out that actually having gospel conversations after they'd had 10 drinks probably wasn't going to be all that helpful, really. And in some ways, it was probably just reinforcing the reality of the fact that they weren't going to respond to the gospel. Now, hear me, I wasn't judging them at that point in that I knew I was a person who'd received grace and mercy. Now, I longed for them to receive it too. But I worked at it those points. It wasn't all that helpful to keep on throwing out pearls to them at that point, that they weren't going to respond. They weren't going to hear it. I think that's what Jesus has on view here. Sometimes it's wiser to say nothing. Sometimes you actually make decisions about relationships where you invest more elsewhere. Can I say the thing you never stop doing is praying for people and longing for people to come into a relationship with God. Uh, you, keep, you keep persisting and trying to make that happen by sharing the gospel with them. So all through this Sermon on the Mount at different points, Jesus is addressing this issue of judgmentalism, the sort of corruption of heart. So how do you avoid becoming like that? How do you you guard that? To exercise godly discernment and yet do that while maintaining a heart of grace and mercy towards people, I think is really hard to do, to get that right, that balance. Um, I think it's easy over time to become zealous for God's name and his honour and actually become more and more oblivious to your own faults and failures and to the grace that you've received. You forget what mercy God has shown you. You can slam immorality uh, while struggling with a lustful heart. You can look down on those who get angry with people and have a short fuse and you, you can seethe under the skin when people don't treat you in the way in which you feel like you should be treated. Uh, You can be dismissive of those who say, Lord, Lord, but seem to indulge themselves with finances and a lifestyle or careerism, and yet secretly uh, you can long for the lifestyle they have or the success that they've had in their career. It's just so easy to do. That's where I think the praying that Jesus refers to in verses 7 to 11 comes in. On the face of it, it's such an open-ended prayer, isn't it? (laughs) Ask, you'll get it. Seek, it's yours. Push on the door. Of course, that door of opportunity will be open to you. Do you want to be wealthy? Yes, God owns the world. He will answer your prayer. He's struggling with sickness. Just pray, you'll be healed. Now, you want a promotion at work? Done. It it feels like that way when you read it. But Jesus is not saying this. Just take a moment to reflect on what God says here in these verses. Notice, first of all, what he does say about the character of God. I don't want to jump over this because I think it's easy to do. Verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Now, if you then, who know, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, this is, this is really a shocking illustration. I mentioned I've got a, a granddaughter, Lily. She's coming up for her fourth birthday, okay? And uh, I think we're going to have the celebration at our house, right? I want you to imagine that I offer to bake the cake for Lily. Apart, don't think about the disaster that that would be for the moment, all right? But presume I offer to bake a cake for Lily, right? And as a sort of a, you know, a morbid joke, I bake it with uh, broken glass, right, and the cake ingredients. And as Lily eats the cake, she cuts herself uh, on this cake as she bites into a birthday cake, right? Now, I've deliberately given you a horrible image, right? And I hope you're thinking, I could never imagine Paul ever doing that, right? I hope you're thinking that. But do you understand that's the point that Jesus is making here? I would never do that to my granddaughter, even though I am a sinful and flawed man. How much more do you think the perfect Heavenly Father won't give good gifts to his children? Do you you understand? He's talking about his, his generosity and his character. And if I know not to do those bad things, how much more do you think God will do good things? for his children, right, when we ask. Friends, we always pray knowing that God is good. We don't always understand why we don't get answers to the prayers that we pray. Prayers that we pray uh, where we think the outcomes would be good, they'd seem good to us. So why doesn't God deliver in the way in which we'd like him to? I think last week I mentioned about uh, Steph, one of our missionaries who'd been serving in Central Asia, came back 35 years old, contracted bowel cancer and died. Now, there were thousands of Christians throughout Adelaide and the world praying that she would be healed and restored and able to return to do the work of the gospel that she was doing in Central Asia. And she wasn't healed. Now, I don't know why God didn't heal her. But let me tell you two reasons that I know aren't the case. I know that God didn't heal her, not because he's not loving or because he is not generous. I know that for an absolute certainty. God is good and God is loving. And that is always the case whenever we pray to him, even if we don't get what we want, what we think would be good for us. So when it comes back to this prayer, what are we being encouraged to pray about? What's the focus of this praying? I want to suggest to you that it is very hard to be discerning about godliness without being hypocritical and judgmental in looking down on others. It is so hard to do that, I think, to get that balance right. So what we're to pray for is poverty of spirit. If you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 3, 
We're to pray that we will be merciful people. Chapter 5, verse 7. We're to pray that we will be salt and light as we tell about Jesus in this world. Chapter 5. We're to pray that God will help us to long to live righteous lives but that he will reveal to us the corruption of our motives and our hearts that will live with that sort of integrity and lack of hypocrisy. And friends, if we pray those prayers, do you think God won't answer them? I tell you, he will. Of course he will. And he'll keep shaping us to be those who have integrity before him, who hold to the honour of his name and who don't look down on others. That's the way in which we should pray. So therefore, we get to the end of this section and we're told this. In everything, do to others what you'd have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It sums up the whole of the scriptures. That's the point that's being made. That makes sense, doesn't it? That is, we're to be a community that's built on grace and mercy because God, he has dealt with us that way. And therefore, we will long for his name to be honoured. And as we understand the nature of God's mercy and grace towards us, well, then we will be grace, gracious and, and merciful towards the sinful And in our community, as one of us strays, then we will put our arms around them and we will not yell in their face. We we will treat brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters in Christ and urge them uh, to honour the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent and turn to the one who has shown them grace and mercy. Friends, We have been forgiven so much, therefore we will love much and we'll reflect the grace of God in our relationships with one another. That's how we ought to pray. That's how we ought to long to live as his people. So I'm going to pray that we'll do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a a passage that's full of puzzles in some ways. And yet, Father, we ask that you'll keep shaping us as your people, that you'll help us to uh, keep searching our own hearts and lives before you, to know that we stand before you only on the basis of your grace and kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you'll help us not to be those who, who judge in the sense of looking down on others, aware of your judgment at the end of the age that there is a, uh, a coming day and yet to know that before your throne we're the recipients of mercy. Help us to be those sort of people with others, particularly with one another. Uh, Father, we know that there are, are lots of areas where we're all still growing, all still learning, all still pressing on. Give us a great humility. Help us not to think we've arrived but rather that we, we keep on looking to you and keep on encouraging one another. And Father, we pray uh, that we will be those who keep uh, seeking, knocking, 
so that we might see your face more clearly, understand the depth of your mercy in a sharper way, and that those truths will therefore infect our whole life together and our relationships. So we'll never find ourselves standing, uh, as it were, in a position of superiority looking down on one another, uh, but rather as people who long for those around us to keep growing in this, this knowledge of your grace and the implications of it as we live for you in righteousness. So, Father, we thank you for this, this young church that's forming and we pray we'll never stray uh, from these truths that they'll constantly be uh, echoed as we meet, as we read your word and in our relationships. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.